So, Ray Tallis, Rupert has essentially suggested that, um, well, you have suggested that reason, as an enterprise, um, is actually a humble one in that it admits its limits, it's constantly testing itself, um, and that any hypotheses, are, it's mandated, in fact, that they are open to rational analysis yeah. and falsification. However, it sounds very much as though Rupert's saying that framework, uh, that paradigm, has amounted to a dogma that is exclusive um, and is at risk, really, of impoverishing the pursuit of truth. Have you put a view on that? I mean, one of the ironies is, is, is uh, Rupert and I would agree on many of the metaphysical points that he made. We've written books, actually, making the same case. Mind-body problem, I agree with what he says. I question uh, the idea that there can be a neurophysiology memory, although I don't accept some of the positive ideas he has. I, too, am sceptical about physics that spends all its time doing double-entry bookkeeping to save the mathematics and so on and so forth from embarrassment. <laughs> so all of that, I recognise that picture. The question is, then, when we sort of narrow down on our more specific theme about the f how medicine can evolve in a more richer, more effective way, um, do these big metaphysical things that Rupert challenged actually have any traction? I mean, Rupert moves from something massive like the law of conservation of energy, etc., etc., to something very specific, which is a claim about alternative medicine. Now, uh, Sam will know last year I got a, the running pin over my head for even questioning alternative yeah, got medicine. Got security in the audience. Got security in the audience. <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, alternative medicine should be just exposed to the same tribunal of experience as orthodox medicine. And one of the things that has been noted is that... Uh, many of these alternative treatments uh, don't seem to stand up to uh, very careful scrutiny. Basically, if I had cancer, I will be unlikely to invoke some of the alternative approaches as my first port of call compared with the orthodox ones for what I think are, are good reasons. So in other words, you can change your whole sort of metaphysical frame of reference, but that doesn't mean you then let in things, as it were, through the back door that are not exposed to the same tribunal experience or the, the same rigid testing. And one point about the dogma of medicine, and I'll stop, is, is actually medicine has thousands of strategies and approaches, hundreds of thousands. Practitioners of alternative medicine tempted to bang one drum all the time. You talk to an acupuncturist about homeopathy and you'll get a flea in your ear. Okay, well, can I say what I think about that? I, I, I lived in India for seven years, and I found that what happened in India was that there are many medical systems. There's Ayurveda, which is the Hindu one, Unani, there's Western medicine, there's sort of faith healers of every kind, shamanic practices, pilgrimages, all sorts of treatments are available, homeopathy. And what happens among Indians is that there's a kind of market research done by ordinary people. If you've got an acute infection, you go to see a Western doctor and get antibiotics. If you've got jaundice, you go to the Unani practitioner because they have a herb that works really well. If you've got a chronic skin complaint, you might go to a homeopath or to an Ayurvedic doctor because the Western medicine's not too good for it. There's a mix-and-match approach. And so most medical systems have a one-size-fits-all approach. You know, acupuncturists and homeopaths may think theirs works for everything. My approach would be to systematically to test the... the, the effectiveness of these treatments. Take a condition like lower back pain or migraine headaches. 
And then ask all these different therapeutic systems, can you cure lower back pain or something? Then have a randomized trial of comparative effectiveness research or outcome research. So many people with lower back pain allocated to osteopaths, acupuncturists, physiotherapists, uh, anyone who claims to train, cure it, and then just see what works best. And the same with migraine headaches. Say that homeopathy came out best for migraines. Um, it probably wouldn't come out best for low back pain. Say it came out best for migraines. Then people would say, well, that's just the placebo effect. Say, okay, well, if they get more placebo effect than you do, surely, and it's cheaper, surely that's what we need to know. So I think comparative effectiveness research is true evidence-based medicine. Right now, the cards are stacked. The Medical Research Council spends a billion pounds a year of our money. How much goes on complementary and alternative medicine? Last time I looked, nothing at all. Um, the U US NIH has actually a whole office of National Institute for Com uh, Com uh, NCCAM, National uh, Complementary and Alternative Medicine uh, Center. Um, they have 0.3% of the NIH budget. Now, if one makes sure that there's no funding for this, uh, except a tiny amount of private funding, and then Professor Ed Zardens comes along and looks at the studies in top journals and finds there aren't many good studies on complementary medicine and says, oh, well, it doesn't work, so why waste money on funding it? One has this kind of dogmatic narrowness. I think comparative effectiveness research would tell us what we know. If I have lower back pain, I don't want to know... Uh, I, I want to know which kind of treatment to go to. I don't know whether I'd go to an osteopath, a chiropractor, a physiotherapist, a GP. I want to know what works best, and I want to know scientifically. And I think this is the best way of doing it. So just to be clear on this, it sounds as though you're both agreeing that the... the and so the pursuit of knowledge in itself, one might argue, the, the case rate in, in, the, in the context of medicine... Knowledge has an immediate, mm. uh, immediate moral responsibility with that knowledge in mm. terms of a duty of care to our patients. And it sounds as though you're both agreeing that the, the scientific method is the root or the rational method in terms of uh, being able to um, produce claims that are tested yes. or refuted through reason is the way to arrive at facts. I think you're right. I mean, uh, I, I guess we don't have a sterile argument about and my fault for introducing alternative medicine, uh, what, what we want to do is to say, well, how can we perhaps relate some of the larger seismic shifts in our metaphysical world picture that, in fact, Rupert was talking about, uh, how can we relate those to something much more specific and narrow, such as thinking more broadly about new approaches to medical care? But just to be clear on that, that's where facts arise from, through rational... Exploration. Oh, yes, yes. But, no, so think, where does the dogma come in? Why is it so, in, in a sense, you're asking for a randomised control trial? Oh, for, yes. I'm what, in favour of empirical science, but I do all the time. I so spend what is my science time. doing? Is it being selective in what it will allow? Yes, it's being selective in what will be funded and allowed. And so, you see, if, if we have this more open approach, which actually, in a more limited area, in the recent book Bad Pharma uh, by Ben Goldacre, he makes the very good point that uh, at the moment drug companies trying new drugs just have to show they're better than nothing to get them approved, you know, in a placebo-controlled trial. Uh, what they should have to do is show they're better than existing and probably much cheaper treatments. Um, in comparing, uh, I used to work in agriculture and the standard procedure in agriculture, someone develops a new crop variety, they say, as a high-yielding high variety. 
What you do is you don't compare it with nothing. You compare it with other existing varieties that farmers are already growing, and you grow them side by side in randomized plots in different, several years in different areas to see whether the new variety does better than the existing ones. If it does, then it's released as an improved variety. Right, and Fisher developed statistics uh, yeah. for I mean, agricultural research. Again, I don't recognize that picture. My own area was epilepsy for many years, and what we would do is compare the new anti-epileptic drug with the existing anti-epileptic drug. Oh, good. Well, then that's so, already that, going that, on. That's absolutely I'm sure in oncology, one makes comparative trials of existing treatments against the new one. I mean, yeah, I think that's, that's yeah. well stitched into what we would consider. Oh, well, I'm glad to know that. Because uh, yeah. the, the so-called gold standard double-blind placebo-controlled trial is not that. And that's often called the gold standard of medical research. I might just ask you both then, if you're happy that that is the route to knowledge, where is it that for um, such reasoning your premises at any one point arrive from? So you'll have a hypothesis, you'll have a couple of premises, they will be uh, that you'll have a sound argument or a valid argument based on a mm. series of rational steps. Where do you draw your premises from? I think the existing state of the science and the existing state of your knowledge of the science, they're the two areas which, as it were, frame whatever investigation you're going to do. So, I mean, well, let, let me answer that one. Yeah. When I started my research on, say, psychic pets, there was nothing in existing science on this subject. It had been so taboo, no one had ever investigated it. There was no existing literature. Uh, there were plenty of sceptics, or so-called sceptics, who said it's rubbish, it's just wishful thinking, projection of anthropomorphic, uh, etc. Um, so how I started that was I, I listened to people's stories. Instead of rejecting them as anecdotes, I took the, the view that the plural of anecdote is data. And I, I have databases... Um, <laughs> I, took, I have data, I asked people to send me their stories. I now have 9,000 stories about human and animal activity in dozens of categories. So I had lots of stories. My dog knows when I'm coming home, even if it's an unusual time. Lots and lots of stories. I started from natural history, which is where science, I think, should, should, in the end starts from. And then I tested it. Does this really happen? Is it an illusion? Uh, what's going on? I think the plural of anecdote is data without denominators. Well, so the point about anecdotes is that anecdote, well, I heard it so often, you see, I looked it up in the dictionary, and anecdote comes from the Greek anecdotos, it means an unpublished story. As soon as it's published, by definition, it's promoted to the rank of case history, and medicine's based on it. Yeah. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Ray, I missed... Um, 40 15. Yeah. <laughs> Rupert, you may yeah. get rain to call. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, I missed your highly contestable statement, which you said, this is highly contestable, but I believe it. What was it? I can't remember talk? it. I probably disagreed, though. <laughs> yeah. You said, this is highly contestable, but I believe it. You don't remember what that was. Anyone in the audience got it? No. No, no. I mean, okay. yes. I wonder what I... Say it again, beg your pardon. Knowledge is independent of the psyche. Yes, a realist view. Oh, no, I was just differentiating between Thank opinions that, to which nothing, as it were, outside of the minds of people corresponds and knowledge. So, for example, if I believe uh, that um, Sam is in Sheffield at the moment, then there's nothing corresponding to that. If I have the true belief that Sam is in Cheltenham, there is something actually corresponding to that. It's external to me. 
That's the point, yes. But it is actually much more complex than that because the argument between realism and anti-realism, as Rupert Bachelor, is a very, very complex area in philosophy which, with, of which I'm familiar with difficult literature. Hence, I was contesting it even as I was saying it. Hence, I'm in trouble at the moment. Well, I, I mean, I, I suppose the interesting thing about just that statement is the choice of words. So you'll have a view about something, you'll think it's contestable, but you'll say you, don't, you either believe it or don't believe it. And what that says, what that particular semantic, I guess, says about our concepts, rather than you just saying that is false, yeah. it'll be that you don't believe it. And how much of um, even rational um, groundings of, of facts are flights at their base, hence the question about premises, flights of belief. Yeah. I mean, we always have to start somewhere, don't we? We have to have a platform from which we jump off. We have to move from presuppositions to, just like you need a, you know, the ground to walk on. <laughs> Uh, but there are times when it, it is good to look at your presuppositions. And I think, again, for me, the interesting question about Rupert's beautiful presentation is not particular conclusions about alternative medicine or orthodox medicine, which we could argue till the cows come home, but more how do these profound questioning of the relationship with the mind and the, and the universe, the, the, the questioning the law of conservation of mass energy and so on, how do they start playing into the way we think about ourselves? And indeed, ultimately, in the way we practice medicine. I think that's the more difficult thing, moving from mm. the metaphysics to the particular practical application. Well, let me say one area I didn't touch on about matter and energy. Um, is conservation of energy in living organisms? This is a huge area with enormous implications for nutrition science, not one of sciences, not one of medicine's most glorious fields, I think. Um, the, in the 19, about 1900, in America, Atwater and Benedict, carried out experiments of people in calorimeters for weeks, uh, you know, cycling on. They measured the oxygen, the carbon dioxide, the food, the feces, the urine, the heat, etc. And as they put it, this was to demonstrate the principle of conservation of energy in humans. They took it for granted it must be real. They said no serious scientist could question this law. That's how they start their paper. But we think it would be good for science to demonstrate it. Well, they demonstrated it, but they got the wrong answer. So they changed the correction factors until they got the right answer. And they got it by testing lots of people. They got many anomalies, and they got some people too much, others too little. They got the right number, so it averaged out at the expected answer of 99.9% .9 agreement with theory. This was accepted by almost everyone, the last nail in the coffin of vitalism, and so on. It was re-examined in the 1970s by a nutritionist in America called Paul Webb, who found huge discrepancies. People who were eating too much and doing very little exercise, with something like 25% of the energy was disappearing. Other people who were eating very little and doing a lot of exercise had 25% too much energy on these calculations. He went back and looked at Atwater and Benedict's paper and found similar discrepancies that they'd, they'd sort of averaged out. He said there's something seriously peculiar going on here. This, this energy balance doesn't add up. Instead of everyone saying, this is fantastic, a new discovery, he was completely ignored. Now, out there, there are people who say there are other kinds of energy, prana, chi, these alternative energy. And, and we say, oh, of course there aren't other kinds of energy, because the principle of conservation of energy holds to live in, in humans and other living organisms. I think it's a huge open question. And, this led me into looking at cases of inedia, the many reports from India, the West, China, and elsewhere of people who live for long periods without eating. Now, all of us, and indeed common sense, says, well, that's impossible. And that's a completely taboo topic. 
And yet, it seems to happen over and over again. And where there have been, the very few cases where there have been scientific studies, there do seem to be really weird anomalies going on here. This would completely change our views of nutrition science, the medical importance of fasting, the nature of, uh, you know, the, the way in which we think about energy balances, and the way that we might try to make sense of alternative medical, or traditional medical systems like the Indian and the Chinese. Huge number of issues, and yet the, whole, the door is slammed on this whole area by it's all impossible because we know the answer already. So here's an example where these bigger principles do impact on medicine and medical research in ways that I don't know, I can't predict how they'll turn out. But what I, if I ran the medical research budget, I'd put a certain, a smallish amount into looking at cases of Inedia and see just what's going on. Right, just before you come in on that, so when, Rupert, when you're saying that that is completely taboo, is it because really it seems so rationally unfathomable or because it hasn't been or because science isn't allowing it to be explored? I mean, I, I'm not conscious that anyone would have a particular objection. It may not be a priority to explore, but a particular objection to exploring it. I think there'd be strong, if you put in a grant application to the MRC to look at Inedia, I mean, uh, they might say you can look at the, the effects of sort of short-term fasts and stuff, but I think, you know, breatharians, and when they make these claims, some people claim they can live for weeks or months or years without food. Uh, this, these are completely taboo. I doubt if you'd get any grant approved, and I doubt if the ethics committee would approve it. And, because you know, it's taboo rather than because of its I think because it's taboo. Right. If you put it, you know, things like Telepathy are taboo, and that's why in the vast majority of universities they're not investigated, they're not taught, and, uh, and that's why there are all these kind of vigilante groups to protect, to patrol the frontiers of science. Ray, is it, do you think that's the case? I, I think, I mean, I've been to your hunger strike. I mean, I assume hunger strikers die of fright, do they? I mean, uh, but it just seems to me that um, uh, one of the things I'm quite interested in is, is, is why science is protective in this way, and I think often for very good reasons. Science actually has spent an awful long time trying to escape from Chardonism. And certainly in the early days of science, it was setting down the boundaries between Chardon and ill-founded claims and stuff that's well-founded. I think that was probably one of the greatest achievements of science. And one of the interesting things, I was thinking as, as um, uh, Rupert was talking about Atwater and, and Benedict's work, I was thinking about, say, Newton's law of, 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 of gra universal gravity. He was only able to demonstrate that to within about plus or minus 5%. He could have been wrong. There could have been a more complex law furry analysis, whatever. And actually, since then, that law has been demonstrated within 0.0000001%, etc., etc. And it seems to me that that is an example of healthy science, where you do take risks. He took a big risk with propagating his law uh, on, on inadequate data, but then there was a method by which it, it, it could be progressive, progressively checked. But I think, as I said, we are agreeing we need to test things. Um, it's all a question of what we feel is an adequate level of proof and demonstration, empirical proof. And what to test. And what to test. And what to test. And yeah. the point is, in the, in the world of modern science, you see the funding question set is what you can test. In the 19th century, science was a lot freer. Darwin, for example, didn't have to apply for grants or go to ethics committees. Um, Darwin didn't have an academic post, he didn't have a grant, he just did his own research. He was an amateur naturalist. And a lot of the great uh, innovators in 19th century science were working independently. Now, almost everybody is institutionalized, 
and on very short leashes, of, and, and most senior scientists spend most of their time filling in grant applications. Even junior ones spend quite a lot of time doing that. And so what you can get funded depends, determines what you do. And because peer review is an inherently conservative process, both for publication and grants, this also has an extremely restrictive effect on what science can do. There are certain institutional constraints, that's without a doubt. You work within certain paradigms and so on. I'm not too sure the institutional constraints are the complete explanation why some of the things that you want to look at or want to be looked at uh, haven't been looked at. I think it, it, it's, there's more to it than that. And Rupert's view on that may be that the dogma would prevent it. Or well, the I scientific... think it's peer group pressure, you see. Right. I think that the... I know this is the case because I went... I gave a talk on my work on dogs that know when their owners are coming home to a veterinary school in England uh, where um, there was a, a sub-department of companion animal research. Companion animal is the academic word for pets. And, and <laughs> so... Um, and I gave this talk, and there were six members of staff. I thought, it meant, I thought it meant husbands, actually. <laughs> <laughs> there were six members of staff and some students. It was a small group, and I gave my data, the statistics, all that kind of thing. And there were some polite questions about methods and stuff. And after the, the talk, we had tea. And one after another, the members of staff came up to me with their tea, and they, they looked like that. And then they said, you know, I'm sure this happens. My dog knows when I'm coming home from the lab. And, and, and he said, but I can't mention it to my colleagues. They're all so straight. And then, and then the next one came up and said, you know, we had a dog that did this when I was a child, and it's one of the things that got me into this field of research. And then another one said, I'm always meeting people who say this happens, but I don't know when all six, including the professor, had said the same thing, and they'd said, you know, I can't tell my colleagues. I said, I said to them, you know, why don't you guys come out? You'd have, <laughs> you'd have so much more fun. And, and, and you see, I, my, my, actually, my recipe for the transformation of science and medicine is not piling up vast amounts more evidence in peer-reviewed journals. I do that. I think we need to do it. But I think it would be something like a coming-out movement. And actually, Sam, you're uh, at the leading edge of this. <laughs> not in front of a live audience. I think that's the cue, actually, to um, bring the lights up, if we could. Anthony, thank you. My wow. God, there's an audience here. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have four roving uh, microphones, two downstairs, two upstairs, and really, I just want you to almost vanish away the, the stage and the chairs, and we want you in this discussion. So have we any questions or comments at all? We have one there at the top, between the two pillars. If you can just um, perhaps tell us where you're from and what you are. Um, I'm a student um, studying medical humanities at Bristol. Um, I was just wondering, you've talked about taboo and not taboo quite a lot, and you gave the example at the start of the H. pylori case. Could you elaborate just quickly, slightly, on how we get that boundary between what we should consider taboo and what we couldn't for research and that kind of thing? So I did, could you repeat that? Right? I, yes, I, I think the question is, what, how, what defines what are taboo subjects to research or not? What it is that, what it, are you asking what it is that's um, judged as a worthy yeah. question? Yeah. Mm. Ray, did you want to pick that up to begin with? I guess it's where the science is now and where the invisible assumptions that support the science are now. 
And to some extent, what, what uh, Rupert says is where the clever money is going, because quite, on, quite understandably, grant-giving bodies want to see some result within a rather short period of time. So short-termism can influence, um, as it were, or, or can make people slightly um, anxious about taking on something that's way outside the paradigm. Having said that, I think we exaggerate the extent to which we are constrained by the paradigm. If we look at medicine, it is an incredibly complex, multicultural in every sense, mess of ideas, thoughts, etc., etc. So I'm not too sure whether we're too totally, totally constrained. Obviously, some of the things that Rupert is concerned about, he's bumped into the wall there, but I'm not too sure that's true in medicine. I myself think that medicine's one of the most interesting areas precisely because it has, it has to interface with real people in the real world. Most academic science doesn't. And um, I think that's why, um, if I look around, the people who are thinking outside the box of, of dogmatic science today, actually most of them are doctors. You know, Ray, James Lefanu, Sam, you know, there's, there's a whole, uh, there's, there's much more of this going on in medicine than there is in other areas. I was asked to give a talk to the Royal College of Psychiatrists Spiritual, Spirituality Special Interest Group a couple of years ago, and I expected to find, walk into a room of about 10 people. There were two or 300. Mm. There's a 1,000 members of this, and the fact they have a Spirituality Special Interest Group has given permission within that pr frame of profession for them to talk about wider issues. Um, and I think actually medicine's pretty well, uh, you know, it's, it's more open than other branches of science mm. because it's more open to forces from the real world and also it's in competition from, with a whole range of other therapeutic systems which flourish and which patients go to. So it has a healthy competi competition. In, in academic, say, molecular biology, that's not the case. And Fashions are extremely predominant there. I mean, the biotechnology fashion led to the infructuous investment of hundreds of billions of dollars in biotechnologies that never came to anything. The Genome Project, for example, was, I mean, it was a technical triumph, but in terms of unleashing a vast new range of profitable patents and technologies, it's led us to the missing heritability problem. It's led to a, a, a big puzzle. I mean, it's good that it has, but huge amounts of money were misspent. So you're only suggesting the dogma has two faces, what's not permitted in, and also the, yes, the potential folly of Yes, that fashionable spending right. in areas right. that are actually just a fashion, and, right. and, 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 and a huge amount of money was wasted in that. But even the human genome example is a good one. Okay, they reached a point of, as it were, stability in 2000, when it, and since then, all hell has broken out, which I think is very healthy. Epigenetics post-genomics, et cetera, et cetera, all of these things have yes. flourished, having discovered that the human genome has turned out to be a rather sterile discovery. So even that rather sad episode has actually been extremely fertile. Oh, yes, it's been fertile. In science. But right. the thing is that the genome project itself led to this... The fashion for molecular biology distorted the whole of biomedical research in the direction of molecular biology, um, which meant that's where the jobs and the careers and the investment were, depriving other areas of biology of funding. But if you're going so to bark up the wrong tree, it's important it should be a sequoia, not a sapling. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'd um, go for lots of trees. I think that's another question. Pluralism. Just over here. We have a microphone just in the um, gentleman in the red cardigan. Thanks. Oh, um, Malcolm Briggs. Oh, can you... Is this on? 
Yeah, yeah. go for it. I, I, I'm Malcolm Brickle. I've been a GP for 40 years, seeing patients just about every day during that time. And I got first interested in this area through Theo Gimble, who was a colour healing therapist in the Cotswolds. And at the time, he was advising American cities on, on the way light and the colour of light could affect crime rates in different cities, an area of research which has, as far as I know, never been taken up in this country. But the, the, the energy levels that um, you've been talking about came again sharply into focus for me only last week when, uh, as usual, a patient was in and out of hospital with something called a hyperemesis gravidarum, or lots of vomiting during pregnancy. And this topic consumes uh, quite a lot of money because patients are given anti-emetics from the pharmaceutical industry. And, and this particular patient um, had been in the hospital four times, several days in hospital, but so suddenly she tried um, a, a wristband with a little magnet in it and came back with a um, complete cure and rave reviews saying how absolutely marvellous this had been. Now, I have no idea that there's ever been any academic research on that subject, but it seems to me to be an example of an area of research that, that d deserves to be taken seriously, but I bet it would never get a... Uh, approved by the um, ethics committee or, or the MRC funding. So what do people, I mean this is a common, thank you very much for that, it's a very common um, experience of uh, patients, indeed doctors and nurses, having perspectives that are anecdotal in their origin and what weight we attach to those. Um, as I guess at least healthcare professionals view on this? I think that's a really interesting question because uh, there are things clearly one could miss that are clues, but most of the things that aren't missing signals, they're just one of those things that happens and so on and so forth. I think it's very difficult to judge at what stage it's good to invest resource in something that so clearly is outside our paradigm of understanding. If we knew when to break with our paradigm, we wouldn't be caught in our paradigm, in a sense. Yeah. Is it so, just, I mean, the resource question is an interesting one, isn't it? And I'm pretty convinced that the NHS is something that has a limited resource forces um, ethical judgments. But let's say we had an infinite resource. That's for, yeah, it's quite entertaining as an idea for a morning. Well, let me, uh, let me just propose in this particular case a method of research that could be done for, what, £5,000, you know, uh, which would simply be to set up an online database. I, mean, I collect all my stories, you know, from about dogs and people on, on a FileMaker Pro database. I have a series of categories. And if there were a category for that kind of thing, you know, cures of this particular condition through bracelets or magnetic things, so that doctors could actually just email into this database, enter these stories in an accumulative database, would hardly cost anything to set up. You'd have an accumulative database of stories or case histories, because it would amount to publication, at least online, um, uh, where they, they would, instead of each one being forgotten and treated as an individual one, patterns would emerge. And if it turned out that lots of people had observed the same kind of thing, then it would be worth investigating. Start from natural history, don't deny it. And um, I, really, this method of where doctors and vets 
can collect information. Every time I talk to um, a vet, they have fascinating stories about animals but, um, which don't fit into the paradigm, but they're all scattered and lost. And collecting the stories, putting them on a database and having it accessible online, or possibly secret for confidentiality reasons, um, wouldn't cost very much at all. And it would provide an accumulating uh, uh, amount of evidence which could then be examined and, and things that look promising where there seem to be a patterns emerging could then be, turn into research programs. So a way of generating your hypothesis. Yes, I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to that, because, yeah. but I think the internet isn't a panacea when it comes to extracting signals from the noise. Well, no, this would be a database that doctors put things into. It wouldn't be one that was sort of open to anybody and open to trolls to put comments on and stuff. Mm. It would be, uh, and people who are, who are going to be part of it maybe have to register, so you'd have some quality control, at least their GPs. Um, 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 so... Um, that went down well. Yes. <laughs> Advantage. He's working in the audience yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't that far off a year ago. So yes. Is Richard Horton in the audience yet? Richard, just, I, just, I just wondered if you'd have a comment on So Richard's editor of The Lancet is coming into one of our later sessions. But that idea of an online database and levels of evidence? Very dangerous. Because? Um, I think... I think part of the part of the difficulty with um, online information, and Ray does point to a truth here, is um, you can find everything there, and the value of it is almost impossible to discern. That said, I think one of the great failings of the edifice of medical knowledge is has been an inability to interact with the public, and. So our, our efforts to be interrogated by the public, we've actually put up barriers. I mean, Ian Chalmers tells a very important story about how if you go out and ask scientists what should be the major areas of research in, for example, musculoskeletal disease, they will give you a whole series of questions mainly revolving around drug therapy. You go out and ask the public and they will give you a series of questions around education, rehabilitation. The MRC, Wellcome Trust Agenda, is not around what the public wants. So we do have to democratise medicine and medical mm -hmm. research by allowing the public in to share decision-making about where we spend our resources. And what medicine has spent three centuries doing is locking out the public from those decisions. So in that sense, I think online information could at least be a spark to that massive wave of democratisation. So when you say it's very dangerous, you mean more procedurally no, it's, da it's dangerous to the dangerous in principle no it's dangerous to the dominance of medicine it's dangerous to the power of medicine and those people who are in the leadership positions of medicine and that's why you will not see them welcome this you know the director of the welcome trust um, or the director of the MRC or the head of the National Institute of Health Research National Institute of Health Research in UK will not welcome that but well, have you can, got can some reservations about it in terms of the danger in terms of governing it as well? So, so that it's, you know, the principle of it, you sound, it sounds like you're applauding democratising knowledge and democratising the drive to research. But do you have reservations in terms of how, what it might do rather than just its threat to medicine? So, no, I'm, I'm f don't get me yeah, wrong. Okay. I, <laughs> I want to see that democratisation, but I fear that the, the way medicine is governed will resist 
right. opening the door to the public sharing decision-making about mm. medicine. So this is coming back to your dogma? Oh, yes, of course. It, it, it's all pervasive. I mean, well, it's in all realms, not just medicine and science. But in, in coming back to this example, I mean, forget the online thing. Let's call it the Register of Medical Anomalies. And that would be, it, could be, set up by private, let, it could be set up by a private foundation. Doctors could email in stories like this one. Uh, there would be a list of categories which would be available to those who register to be participants in the Register of Medical Anomalies. And they'd be, uh, these case histories would be compiled in this database. This would remove any fear people would have, this is an online thing, patients will see it. It, it can be a professional register of medical anonymous. It doesn't require asking the British Medical Association, the Medical Research Council, the Wellcome Trust. It could probably be funded privately on £10,000. And so, you know, one can get round these cumbersome bureaucracies by doing work cheaply.